Quick disclaimer this week, there's a mention of sexual assault. Check out the post on mythpodcast.com for more information. This week on Myths and Legends, it's our lead up to the Trojan War with the backstories of Odysseus, Agamemnon, Menelaus, Penelope, Clytemnestra, and more. But we'll see that the greatest heroes of all are judgy purple ducks. On The Creature this week, you'll see why you shouldn't leave work early, especially if your job is clearing angry dragons from an island. This is Myths and Legends, episode 153, The Angry One. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. When it comes to our route to the Trojan War, we are on the slowest of boats across the Aegean, mainly because it requires a lot of background, but with all the other stories from Greek mythology weaving in and out, partially because it's a massive undertaking in its own right. We've covered the backgrounds of Achilles and Paris, and we've seen the spark that led to the war after the contest of the Golden Apple and the abduction of Helen by Paris. So today, let's start by looking at some of the major characters and their origin stories. Characters like Odysseus, Helen, Agamemnon, Menelaus, Penelope, Clytemnestra, and a few others. In a few weeks, we will finally arrive at the famous war. And by then, we'll know who everyone is and hit the ground running. Autolycus, son of Hermes, looked to the ground, to the hoof print that read, stolen by Autolycus. That was an oversight. King Sisyphus, the guy he'd stolen the cattle from, suspected him strongly enough that he had had the statement carved into his cattle's hooves, declaring Autolycus's guilt before the man had committed the crime. It was a move that was as gutsy as it was completely correct. King Sisyphus had told the whole neighborhood before breaking the news to Autolycus, and so the son of Hermes had woken up to an angry mob beating on his door. Pretty much everyone in the neighborhood had experienced some degree of cattle theft over the years, all while Autolycus's herds mysteriously grew. More than a few people had asked to see Autolycus's herds, and the demigod was more than happy to oblige, showing them cattle that looked nothing like the descriptions of the recently missing. Then Sisyphus came along, Sisyphus had long suspected Autolycus's power, the one where he could change cattle to look like any other cattle. And with the stamps of the hooves in the dirt, Autolycus was caught in the act. Fine, Autolycus would make good on the cattle he stole. But Sisyphus wanted more than that. Sisyphus wanted to twist the knife. And that's why Sisyphus wasn't in the crowd that morning. Ever since Sisyphus, the disgraced king, had moved near Autolycus, he hadn't been able to take his eyes off the demigod's daughter, Anticlea. She was young, too young when Sisyphus met her, but she wasn't young anymore. She had come of age recently, and she was going to be married in a few days to some guy, one of the hero types, named Laertes. And when that happened, she'd be forever beyond his reach. As the crowds gathered out front, demanding that Autolycus make restitution for what he had stolen, Sisyphus snuck in through the back door, and he was going to take something from Autolycus and Anticlea. Now, Greek sources are notoriously vague when it comes to what constitutes sexual assault. Ravished is about as close as the ancients get to saying it, 
And here, that's the word they use. Autolycus returned and rushed to his daughter's side. He knew the mobs were intimidating, he said, putting an arm around her, but there was no reason to cry. They would be fine. And he still had enough to pay her dowry to Laertes, king of Ithaca. With the mere mention of her betrothed, Anticlea began weeping anew. Even if people believed Anticlea, and even if Sisyphus would be brought to justice, Anticlea had far more to lose than a disgraced king who was already on Zeus's hit list. She would be disgraced, and she'd not only lose her betrothed, but she would never be betrothed again. Anticlea thought her father wasn't the type to cast her out, but she didn't know. So, Anticlea kept quiet, and married Laertes, the former Argonaut, most notable for being an Argonaut, and doing pretty much nothing else noteworthy, as in, the most he did on the quest was not get on the bad side of Medea, and not get put in traction, when Hercules met up with the Argonauts, and thanked them for abandoning him on an island. Now, however, he was returning to his island kingdom of Ithaca, a small and modest kingdom with his new wife, Anticlea. It took him by pleasant surprise how quickly Anticlea became pregnant, and even more so when it was not only a boy, but a boy who, born a few weeks premature, was as big and as healthy as a baby carried fully to term. They sent word to Grandpa Autolycus, and he set sail to Ithaca to meet the new bundle of joy. The baby didn't have a name yet, and Autolycus took his grandson into his arms and beamed. Laertes rested his hand on Anticlea's knee and nodded. She smiled and told her father that, that they wanted him to have the honor of naming the baby. Autolycus was taken aback. Him? Name the baby? Anticlea smiled and nodded. Autolycus began welling up. He was so grateful. And no matter what name he gave the baby, they would go with it? Laertes answered that one. Yeah, he got to pick the name, no matter what. The proud grandfather raised the smiling baby and looked into his eyes. Odysseus. The baby would be named Odysseus. With eyes closed, Autolycus hugged the baby close. But seriously, Dad? Laertes asked his father-in-law. Mm-hmm, Autolycus replied without looking up. He was deep into making funny faces with his new grandson. Dad, you, why did you just name our baby the angry one? Or in another translation, one who will cause pain and be willing to do so, Anticlea asked in disbelief. Mm-hmm, Autolycus mumbled. What? Why? Can't you see that that's a terrible name for a baby? Laertes spat. Autolycus made no eye contact, and he continued bouncing baby Odysseus on his knee. He reminded his daughter that he was a liar, a cheat, a con man. He knew exactly who he was, and throughout his life, he had angered so many people, made so many enemies. Anticlea looked down at the mention of Autolycus's enemies. So yeah, everyone is going to be mad at this kid because of stuff I did. So yeah, I gave him the name The Angry One. Because, frankly, things are going to be tough, Autolycus explained, handing the child back to his daughter. It was less a curse and more just a statement of fact. Autolycus took a deep breath, pushed his hands on his knees, and rose. All right, well, this has been fun. He'd be heading out now, probably forever, 
So good luck with the family and, you know, the consequences of my poor decision making. Autolycus stopped himself and held up a finger as he left the house. Oh, he almost forgot. If Odysseus wanted not just the baggage of Autolycus being a jerk to everyone for years, but his stuff as well, he should come to see Autolycus on Mount Parnassus when he was old enough, and Autolycus would assuage his anger. All right, well, I'd say peace out, but, you know, that's not really my thing. So I guess don't do anything I wouldn't do, and also most of the things I would do. What with me being an infamous con man. Bye. Elsewhere, roughly 200 miles southeast, in Sparta, a baby by the name of Arnea was being tossed off a cliff. Icarius had been out on a walk one day when he heard laughter from the river. He investigated the laughter and found the most beautiful woman he had ever seen there, smiling in the water. She rose and kissed the Spartan prince. Icarius, of course, kissed her back and descended into the river. He wouldn't return to Sparta until the following morning. He told his wife, Polycaste, that he had simply gotten lost in the forest on an impromptu hunt and been forced to camp out for the night. She looked at Carius up and down. Did that explain why he was soaking wet? Sheepishly, Icarius waved it off and went to get some sleep. What happens in the Greek wilderness doesn't stay in the Greek wilderness, as Zeus could well attest, because months later, the naiad, a freshwater deity named Periboya, stood at the gates with a child. With his child. Lucky enough for the prince, he was able to intercept the woman and the baby girl before anyone but his most trusted servants learned of it. He sent the nymph away, and she was more than happy to oblige. She had been looking for the same thing that Icarus had been looking for that day in the forest, and she did not want a family. That's why she was dropping little Arnea off at Sparta for forever. The girl was Icarius's problem now. Except that she wouldn't be his problem for long. Icarius, to his credit, didn't send a servant to do his dirty work and expose the child out in the wilderness. We're further along in our Greek mythology timeline now, so maybe he knew of the countless times that that had gone very wrong for parents past. No, he was going to handle things himself. That was why he chucked little Arnea off a nearby cliff and into the ocean. In the long seconds that followed, he dusted off his hands, winced slightly at the sound of the child breaking the water's surface below, and walked away toward home. Done and done. But that's when he heard the quacking. Don't turn around, he told himself. It was an, albeit expedited, way of exposing your child in the wilderness, just dropping her into the water. But the less he knew about her fate, the less culpable he would be. And as he walked away, he expected the quacking to die down, except it only grew louder. Then he heard the baby's cry. He was a good 40 paces away from the cliff at this point. And the baby, being a baby, really shouldn't be crying right now. Unable to ignore the sound, he swore and rushed to the cliff's edge. Below, a flock of purple, striped ducks not only buoyed little Arnia above the water, but they were clearly spitting worms and bits of grass into her mouth as they dragged her to land. Was this because of Arnia's mom or possibly just some good Samaritan purple ducks that decided to help out a baby on their trip south? Icarius wondered. Regardless, he could take the hint. 
Icarius rushed to the shoreline, where he scooped up the baby, ignoring more than a few judgmental duck faces. Once back home, he went to Polycasty. He had to tell her. Taking a deep breath, Icarius told his wife that he'd found a baby on the shore. Not a lie, when he was out for a walk, thinking about just how much he loved his amazing wife. Polycasty turned to face her husband, lips pursed. Uh-huh. And does this baby have a name? Icarius shook his head, likely too dramatically. Today was literally the first time he had ever seen the baby. Also technically not a lie. Hmm, Polycasty said, folding her arms. And Icarius claimed that she was being dragged by, what was it, judgy ducks? He nodded. Yep, also true. Three for three when it came to true statements. Hey, hat trick. Uh, how about no more questions? All right, well, this was a stupid conversation and Polycasty was tired of it. If Icarius was asking her to take in his daughter from an affair, what could she say? No, she wasn't the evil stepmother type. She wasn't Hera, and it wasn't the baby's fault that she had been fathered by an idiot. And it sounded like that same idiot already tried to take care of the situation. But the gods, or judgy ducks, had stayed his hand, which meant that the baby must have some great purpose in the world. So, yes, she could stay. But Polycasty would not be humiliated. The baby would be Polycasty's daughter. No one would ever know of her true origins. She was rescued by ducks, right? Penelope's? That very specific breed of duck? Icarius nodded vigorously. Good. Then that will be her name, Polycasty replied. And she took the baby into her arms. Penelope. We'll see some other fun bird problems that the Spartan royal family deals with, but that will be right after this. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. All right, now back to the show. It would seem that the Spartan royal family would have a complicated relationship with birds after that beginning. Case in point, a few years earlier, a giant swan flew down and found the queen. And stories say that the swan seduced the woman. I don't know what type of moves that swan had, but I think it can be safely assumed that, since it was Zeus, the swan did not seduce Leda. But instead, yeah. W.B. Yeats has an excellent poem describing the event, and I put it up on the website. Anyway, a few days later, Leda, the queen of Sparta, 
laid an egg. We've talked about the person that came from this union, Helen, princess of Sparta, and her storied life. From hatching from an egg she shared with her two brothers and one sister, to being kidnapped by Theseus and raised by his mom, while the famous king of Athens was a prisoner in the underworld, to being rescued by her egg brothers and returning to Sparta. But there's someone we haven't talked about much. The guy who immediately caught the eye of young Helen upon her return to Sparta, an exiled prince by the name of Menelaus. Menelaus and Agamemnon had been dealing with their grandfather's curse their whole lives. But when they found their home in Sparta, they felt as though their luck might actually be changing. We're going to jump back in time a bit for a quick history lesson. Agamemnon and Menelaus were from the great city of Mycenae, and they were sons to King Atreus. Who was King Atreus? He and his brother, Thyestes, were sons of the famous King Pelops. Now, Pelops, remember the grandfather of Agamemnon and Menelaus, he cheated on his wife, and she, not viewing things through the same lens as Polycaste, immediately enlisted sons Atreus and Thyestes to kill their half-brother, a crime for which the boys fled the kingdom in their dad's wrath. Both Atreus and Thyestes ended up in Mycenae, talking to the famous coward from way back in episode 8, King Eurystheus of Mycenae. King Eurystheus was the cousin of Hercules, and the guy who sent the famous demigod on his deadly to-do list. Well, at the time of our current story, Hercules was dead, but over the course of his life, he'd fathered many, 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 many children, and they had all found each other, and formed a fun little club called the Heraclids. They were, of course, not thrilled about how Eurystheus treated dad way back when, and so the band marched on Mycenae. In his absence, Eurystheus left Atreus, remember the father of Agamemnon and Menelaus, temporarily in charge, because, of course, he'd be right back. However, he never made it back in what was Hercules' final victory against Eurystheus from beyond the grave, thanks to his no-doubt buff progeny killing the king. Back at the palace, the nobles had shrugged, appointed Atreus their new king, and that was that. Except it wasn't. Cue the story of Atreus and his brother Thyestes, quite possibly the darkest story in Greek mythology, complete with rape, incest, and cannibalism. I've covered it ad nauseum, and I mean ad nauseum, in episode 59. Well, when the dust cleared, Atreus was dead, Thyestes was the newest king of Mycenae, and Atreus's two sons, remember, Agamemnon and Menelaus, fled their city, their birthright, and went into exile. And so, the curse of Pelops became the curse of the house of Atreus, their house. And when they arrived in Sparta, under the protection of King Tyndareus, Agamemnon knew that kingdoms, wealth, and power were all fleeting, promises that weren't kept, or riches that could be stolen. They had spent the past few years as vagabonds, knocking around from kingdom to kingdom. They vowed not to make the same mistake their father did, even if it meant fighting the entire world. Agamemnon and Menelaus vowed to never turn their backs on each other, because they were all they had. Now, we don't know much about the love story between Helen and Menelaus, a story that's vastly overshadowed by that of Helen and Paris. But still, they did have a love story. It wasn't grand or dramatic, but rather simple. Like most who saw Helen, Menelaus was infatuated with her from the moment he laid eyes on her. But maybe that went deeper. 
Thanks to his years as a prince in exile in the court, they had the opportunity to talk. And I like to think that Menelaus came to love Helen, not just for her beauty, but for who she was. Maybe she came to love the strange prince who lived in their father's kingdom as a man who cared about her for more than her looks. Anyway, brothers Menelaus and Agamemnon came of age in the kingdom that wasn't their own, though the man in charge of said kingdom was determined to make it their own. Tyndareus sat the young men down and shared a plot, an alliance. He would take the military might of Sparta and march it north, deposing Thiestes and returning the house of Atreus to its rightful throne. Agamemnon would be the high king of Mycenae. I like to think that Menelaus swallowed hard, him having to put his oath to always stick by his brother to the test early. But then Tyndareus turned to Menelaus. Menelaus would have Helen, you know, if she would take him. And just to show how committed he was to this plot, Tyndareus would give Menelaus a throne of his own because he would be giving Menelaus his own throne. Tyndareus would announce that men could come from across the world for Helen's hand, and they would. But it was like when a company says they're hiring, but they already have an internal applicant in mind, and Menelaus was that internal applicant. He loved Helen. Helen loved him, and he would take Tyndareus' place on the throne. Brothers ruling Sparta and Mycenae, the Peloponnesian Peninsula would be allied in power and intention, and they would effectively be the rulers of the Greek world. With that type of power, they could have a generation of peace to build Greece into the land that they knew it could be. While the three kings were marching north to find Thiestes cowering in the temple of Hera, begging his nephews to spare his life if he named Agamemnon the king and fled into permanent exile, Odysseus was north, across the Gulf of Corinth, bleeding out. He had, indeed, gone to meet with Autolycus, and while meeting Grandpa, and apparently all the uncles he never knew he had, did go well, the hunt the following day did not. Even though Odysseus had flung the spear that killed the boar, he got nearly as good as he gave. The boar had gored his thigh, and his black blood was pouring out onto the ground. It was only because of the quick thinking of his many uncles, and the fact that he was the grandson of a demigod, and at said demigod's house for a weekend visit, that he was saved. They stopped the bleeding, but Odysseus limped away with the scar he would carry for the rest of his life. But he also limped away with riches. Autolycus, his grandfather, looked on him with pride after the way he handled himself. When he returned to Ithaca, he was on a trireme loaded down with gold, enough to build a future for Odysseus and his fledgling kingdom. Here's where we start to enter some familiar territory for this podcast, because a few months back, we talked about this next scene. After Agamemnon took back the kingdom that his gross dad had ruled once upon a time, King Tyndareus of Sparta announced that he was going to marry off his daughter. Suitors came from all over the Greek world for the hand of the breathtaking daughter of Zeus. And Odysseus, always the schemer, knew that there was a reason Tyndareus was delaying the choice. Then, Odysseus spotted the glances between Menelaus and Helen. He nodded. The contest was rigged, and if Tyndareus was lucky, he might be able to contain the bloodshed to the city when the testosterone-laden kings realized what Odysseus just realized. Odysseus had come to Sparta never expecting to win Helen's hand. No, his prospects were far more modest. It would probably be folly to call it love. Odysseus and Penelope would fall in love, but for now, 
it was just a way for Odysseus to get a leg up in the world. Before Odysseus went to King Tyndareus and proposed the plan, he wasn't even able to compete in the chariot races for Penelope's hand. The plan, as we know, was that all the kings in attendance would come to the aid of the winner of Helen's hand, should any ill befall him or Helen. For Odysseus, it was a way to get his foot in the door and bolster his profile a bit with the hand of a Spartan princess, because Tyndareus would vouch for him and put in a good word so that Odysseus could compete for her hand. For Tyndareus, it was a way to get all the other suitors out of the way, so he could finally unite the Peloponnese. Neither men knew that they were sealing the fate of thousands with that simple handshake. So the suitors swore the oath to protect Helen's life and the life of her future husband, each hoping that he would be the future husband. And the group swore again as Helen crowned her childhood friend and the man she had loved all along, Menelaus, to be her husband. After the nuptials, Tyndareus announced that he was abdicating, leaving Sparta in the capable hands of Menelaus and his daughter, the now pregnant Queen Helen. Elsewhere in Sparta, it was announced that Odysseus, the little-known king of a little-known island, had won the chariot race for Penelope's hand. For the next nine years, Agamemnon and Menelaus no doubt thought that they had outrun their family curse. Agamemnon had an uninterrupted string of victories, the last of which made him not just the biological brother of Menelaus, but a brother-in-law as well. There was a king to the west, in the town of Pisa in Greece, who had stood against Agamemnon and his all-encompassing grip over the Peloponnese. As Pisa burned and Agamemnon strode into the throne room, he unceremoniously stabbed King Tantalus, but not that Tantalus, in front of his new wife, a woman by the name of Clytemnestra. Clytemnestra clenched her jaw. She didn't scream, even as her husband's blood spattered across her face. It was then that Agamemnon cocked an eyebrow at the bronze spine of this woman who refused to back down. Even as he stomped across the room and looked down upon her, she had met his gaze, unflinching. Then, with a cry from the next room, Clytemnestra's facade cracked. It was a baby, the son of she and Tantalus. Her eyes widened, and she didn't hesitate. She immediately went for the dagger at Agamemnon's belt, but he caught her hand before she could strike him with it. He twisted her wrist, and the weapon clanged on the ground while he nodded to his warriors to restrain the mother. Agamemnon walked to the other room, and, in a matter of seconds, the baby boy stopped crying. There was only one reason that Clytemnestra didn't meet the same fate as her husband and son. She was the sister-in-law of Menelaus. She, too, had hatched from the egg that held Helen and her brothers, and, though she wasn't known across the world for her beauty, that didn't stop her from finding a match a good match in a good man, one that Agamemnon had cut down in his quest for dominance. I don't know if this is an instance where Agamemnon didn't know that his first cousin, Tantalus, was married to Tyndareus' daughter, or if because the former king of Sparta, Tyndareus, was out of power and there was nothing truly standing in Agamemnon's way, this was the time when it was better to ask for forgiveness than it was to ask for permission. Either way, Agamemnon did ask for forgiveness from the man who had given him everything. He asked for forgiveness and more. He asked for Clytemnestra's hand in marriage. Agamemnon never pretended to actually like Clytemnestra. And Clytemnestra, who told her new husband that she understood the necessity for him to kill Tantalus and the boy, 
Tantalus because he stood against Agamemnon, and the boy because you couldn't leave a loose end that would grow up and lead an army against you. She told her husband these things, but neither of them really believed it. And the marriage was less about love, and more so to cement the alliance between Sparta and Mycenae. And, of course, to call off Tantalus's family from attacking Mycenae and perpetuating the war. Nine years passed, and families were expanding. Menelaus and Helen, happy in Sparta, had a daughter by the name of Hermione. Agamemnon and Clytemnestra had four children, three daughters, Iphigenia, Electra, and Chrysothemis, and a son by the name of Orestes. Just after the birth of the son, around that same time, Penelope and Odysseus had a boy. They named him Telemachus. When Paris, the Trojan prince with problems and promises of his own that we talked about at length in episode 132b, visited Sparta, he met Queen Helen, and either seduced her in the modern meaning of the word, or seduced her in the ancient Greek meaning of the word, and straight up kidnapped her, taking her back to Troy. We'll talk about what Helen's experience was like in the coming episodes, but the fallout was intense and immediate. Menelaus was heartbroken, but Agamemnon was enraged. Some foreign prince didn't get to come over to his brother's kingdom and kidnap his wife. The Trojans would answer for this. And then, Agamemnon remembered the pledge, a pledge that all the people seeking Helen's hand had made nearly a decade prior. And Agamemnon and his brother set sail for Ithaca. He's been like this for for months, Penelope said, holding the baby Telemachus to her chest before she broke out in deep sobs. Odysseus was at the plow, his mouth foaming in the shadow of a peasant's felt cap. His shoulders and chest burned. He plowed all day and night, Penelope explained, stopping only to eat the same slop as the animals and to sleep in the barn. Menelaus, Agamemnon, and a man by the name of Palamedes, son of yet another king, watched as Odysseus whipped an unequally yoked donkey and ox, plowing a field long dry from countless days of plowing, and reached into his bag of seeds. Out came a handful of salt, which he threw backwards over his shoulder, ruining the fields anew. Menelaus shrugged. They would be able to call the other kings on their oaths, without Odysseus. He just engineered the whole thing, but it was still tragic that such a great mind had been lost to madness. Agamemnon agreed, and apologized to Penelope for all this. He and his brother turned to make their way back to the boats, when they heard Penelope shriek. Both brothers turned to see Penelope fighting Palamedes, as the latter tore the baby from her arms. He held her at bay, as he placed young Telemachus in the direct path of the plow, the one driven by his mad father. Palamedes stepped out of the way, gripping Penelope by the arms, and holding her back. Palamedes, we don't need him, Menelaus called out lurching toward the plow. Agamemnon agreed. He had done some dark stuff in his time, but this was just unnecessary. The guy was mad, picked the baby up out of the dirt. But Palamedes wouldn't listen. Telemachus screamed. Penelope fought. But Palamedes didn't move. Thinking of his own child, Hermione, Menelaus became frantic, demanding that Palamedes save the child. Hard at work, the mad Odysseus continued whipping the animals were still plodding along toward the helpless infant. Finally, Menelaus could see that Palamedes wasn't going to stop. And Odysseus, in this madness, 
couldn't either. Menelaus took off in a sprint toward the child and prayed that he wasn't too late. Just as the next hoof was about to come down on the baby's head, and Menelaus dove, the hoof stopped and moved back. Smiling, Palamedes let Penelope go, who rushed to scoop up little Telemachus. Odysseus wiped his mouth and removed his felt cap. Stepping down from the plow, he glowered at Palamedes for discovering his ruse, and he went to gather his things. The prophet had said that if Odysseus left for war, he wouldn't return for 20 years. And by then, he would be alone and destitute. Well, the obvious loophole was that if he didn't leave, the prophecy couldn't be fulfilled, right? And so he feigned madness. So they wouldn't even ask him to go. So he wouldn't be held to his oath. But he was asked. And he was held to his oath. And so he and his ships followed Agamemnon and Menelaus out of the harbor. There was to be a gathering at Aulis, where the ships would sail northeast to Troy to make the Trojans answer for Helen. But Odysseus, in his cleverness, had other uses. He was not going north, but east, to the island of Syros. Rumor had it that one who would end the war was hiding out there, a young man by the name of Achilles. we're caught up to our current timeline. Achilles is on Syros, from episode 145, and the mustering of the troops to sail east. The recruitment effort will continue, and when we catch up with Agamemnon and Menelaus in a few weeks, we'll see things not surging ahead, but stalling out. And when you have a thousand ships, and many times that number and restless and violent ancient world heroes, Agamemnon starts to think that he'll do anything to get that wind moving again, so they can continue sailing east. If you'd like to support the show, beyond leaving a review or telling a friend, there's also a membership thing on the site. For less than the price of a $90, two-foot-tall Danny DeVito cardboard cutout, you can get extra episodes, source-back ebooks, and ad-free versions of the show that are maybe well-told enough to make you feel like there's a two-foot-tall mythological creature in the form of Danny DeVito scurrying around your house. But if you're looking for that particular experience you should probably spring for the $90 cutout. Check out support.mythpodcast.com for more info on the membership. The creature this time is Lignapaste from Ireland. As we all know, St. Patrick drove the snakes out of Ireland. And he did a great job too. To this day, no snakes in Ireland. He kind of wrapped up a little too soon though, because while there are no snakes in Ireland there is still a dragon on Ireland. After St. Patrick died, Lignapaste, which literally means last of the serpents or last of the dragons, figured the coast was clear. He slunk out of his cave, wrapped himself around a hill, and whenever he wanted a snack, he'd just pop into a nearby village and eat a peasant or 12. Or if he really wanted to treat himself, he'd swing by a nearby farm and eat a cow. Life was good. Soon, the people started bringing him stuff, like sacrifices to keep him there and satiated, which was just so nice. It was like Uber Eats if all they brought you was terrified live animals. One time, 
After a fun afternoon of spewing fire and poison around the countryside, the dragon was sitting around his hill when a funny little guy in a rough tunic came up with three rods. The man nodded and said he was Saint Moreau. The dragon said he had been in his cave for, you know, a millennia, give or take, so he didn't know what a saint was, but he bet he knew why the strange little man was here. A sacrifice. The people did human sacrifices in the old days. It was so much fun for the dragon. So yeah, did the saint want to do it here or? Saint Moreau held up a hand. He said he had three iron rods. Could he put them on the dragon's back? The dragon looked at him and then shrugged. Yeah, they're just three harmless rods. Was this part of how sacrifices went now? Just do it, just go ahead and do it. He was getting hungry. He let Saint Moreau put the first rod on his back praying hard while he did so. And then the second, at the third, while Moreau was praying the hardest, the rod grew, warped, and intertwined with the others, wrapping the dragon up and immobilizing him. It even wrapped around his mouth, stopping his poison and fire, and making him talk with a muffle. The dragon said that this wasn't fair, this wasn't how it worked. As a dragon, he outranked a human like the saint, and he ordered the human to untie him. Saint Moreau held up a finger. Huh? Well, actually, he was working on behalf of God, and God outright the dragon. It, the dragon held up a claw the best he could. It, he walked right into that one. He got it. Yeah, just, just go. And the saint did. He just left the dragon there. Eventually, over time, the dragon rolled down into the river. And since he can't die, he just waits in a secluded spot for Judgment Day. For some, his thrashing is the reason for the strange currents and high tides in the low foil river. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes, and I want to say thanks again to Magoosh for sponsoring us this week. Do your career goals require you to take a standardized test, like the GRE, GMAT, LSAT, MCAT, or SAT? Magoosh Online Test Prep provides you with the tools you need to get a great score, like study schedules, up-to-date practice questions, video lessons, and support from expert tutors. Study anywhere, anytime on desktop or mobile. Visit magoosh, M-A-G-O-O-S-H dot com and enter the promo code MYTHS for a 15% off discount. All right, thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.